morning, everybody. Um, I am really excited uh, to be speaking today. I'm going to be actually finishing our foundation series that we've been looking at from the book of Ephesians. And um, if you remember recently, we've been looking at relationships, haven't we? And how knowing who we are changes the way that we think and the way that we live especially when it comes to how we relate to others. And so far we've looked at marriage and family and the relationships between husbands and wives. Tom looked last week at the relationships between parents and children. And today we'll see that the Apostle Paul finishes this section by turning his attention to the workplace and the relationships within work and employment. Now, just as Tom said last week, it may be that your situation or your stage of life means that you are not currently in a traditional workplace setting. But I believe that the principles that Paul addresses in this passage that we're going to look at today are helpful to all of us as we navigate this foundation of relationships in the church. You see, husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and servants were to be found in the earliest Christian congregations. And so Paul addresses these areas because it is in these key relationships that the Christian life is to be put into practice. Today, we're going to consider how knowing who we are as God's people changes the way we relate to the people that we work with. So let's get straight into the passage. I'm going to read Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, we need a bit of background having read this. Who were these slaves that Paul was speaking about? And is there any justification for us to use this passage to talk about work? Well, the workers of the Roman Empire were slaves to their Roman masters. And for many in Paul's time, work was literally slavery. Slaves could be inherited or purchased or acquired in the settlement of a debt. And prisoners of war commonly became slaves. Nobody queried or challenged the arrangement. Slavery was a fact of Mediterranean economic life that was just completely accepted as part of the sort of labour structure. 
And so Paul is not just referring here to a handful of people. The theologian William Barclay estimates that there were over 60 million slaves in the Roman workforce. Now, to modern ears, the reference to slaves and masters makes us uncomfortable, and rightly so. The things that come to mind when we think of slavery are the harrowing accounts of African men, women and children captured and sold to slave traders in the 16th and 19th centuries as Western states competed with one another to create overseas empires. It is estimated that Britain alone transported 3.1 million Africans to the British colonies and sold them as slaves to work on plantations in order to build the British Empire. And despite the abolition of slavery in 1807, we know that today slavery continues for the estimated 40.3 million people trafficked and made to work through force, fraud or coercion. The A21 campaign, which is a non-governmental organisation that uh, works to fight human trafficking, they estimate that 5.4 out of every 1,000 people are enslaved in the world today. So how do we read a passage like this that seems to casually reference slaves and how they should relate to their masters? And what has this got to do with us and work? Well, we need to go back to the context into which Paul is writing these words. You see, slavery in Paul's time was very different. Admittedly, slavery in biblical times was not always great. Some slaves were undoubtedly mistreated and abused. But it would not be stretching things too far to say that there were probably more similarities with our contemporary idea of employment than you might think. Let me give you some examples. Slavery in the Bible was not based exclusively on race, for example, nationality or the colour of skin, like we saw in Britain from the 16th to 19th centuries. Actually, slavery was more of a social status or a class. People often sold themselves into slavery for all sorts of reasons, like when they couldn't pay their debts or provide for their family. And slaves did all the work in the Roman household, both domestic and clerical, including tutoring the children. And it wasn't just the poor that were in slavery. In New Testament times, sometimes doctors, lawyers, and even politicians were slaves of someone else. Some people actually chose to be slaves so as to have all their needs provided for by their master for an easier life. And although it is true to say that slaves were the property of their masters, in practice, this did not stop many of them from actually experiencing a good deal of freedom. Many earned a living or worked in partnership with their owners. Some held positions of authority within businesses or in lower levels of government. 
and it wasn't unusual for a slave to receive a good education. Now, please hear me, I'm not trying to justify slavery here. The thing that I want you to see is that when Paul or other New Testament writers address slaves, they are not necessarily addressing an oppressed group of people, but rather a very large and influential crowd who are the workforce of the Roman Empire. So with this in mind, what does Paul say relationships between Christian workers and their employers should look like? Well, the first characteristic is obedience. Verse 5. Slaves, obey your masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Paul calls Christian slaves to obey. Now, actually, slaves were already obligated to obedience, Failure to do so could mean at least loss of position or risk of destitution, and at worst, to pay for their disobedience with their lives. We must keep in mind that just as every marriage and every parent-child relationship was worked out in a patriarchal setting, the same applied to the relationships between servants and masters. Husbands, fathers, and masters had far more social, intellectual, political, and financial power than women, children, and slaves. Therefore, slaves were objects of ownership that masters could do with as they pleased, just as we've previously looked at was the case for how husbands and fathers could treat their wives and children. So, into this patriarchal society, it would be no surprise to Paul's readers that he is commanding slaves to obedience. This would have been the bare minimum expected of them. But how they were to obey, and the fact that he is addressing slaves at all, would have been radically countercultural. The simple fact that Paul has something to say to slaves shows that they were accepted members of the Christian community who Paul regards as responsible and valued individuals. And so he writes this appeal. If children are to obey their parents, slaves are to obey their earthly masters. You see, Paul doesn't abolish the social structures of his day and create new ones. Rather, what was radical was that he urges those that are filled with the Spirit and worship Christ as Lord to have totally transformed relationships within their working context. It's not the bare minimum, grit your teeth and say, yes, boss. It's obedience with respect and fear and sincerity of heart. Not just to go through the motions of obedience, but to obey just as you would obey Christ. Can you imagine the impact in Paul's day of obeying a slave master willingly with honour 
and genuinely doing it from the heart rather than just paying lip service. <coughs> Applying this principle to our own workplaces, I would argue, is as radically countercultural as it was to Paul's original hearers. The benchmark for our obedience is to do it as we would obey Christ. This is about respect and honour towards the boss. It's about not getting involved with gossip in the workplace or moaning about leadership decisions or stirring up dissent. It's about believing the best in people being generous with praise and encouragement. Now, when we honour someone, it doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything they say or do. But it's about serving that person. I heard Bill Johnson say recently, when you wash someone's feet, you find out why they walk the way that they do. So when you humble yourself to serve somebody who is made in God's image, you get to honour them for who they are and understand what they're about and where they're coming from. This is what makes godly obedience so countercultural. And Paul goes even further in verse 6. He says, Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. This is the litmus test. How's your obedience when no one's looking? Paul is dealing here with the issue of integrity. It goes back to his description in verse 5 of obeying with sincerity of heart. This is a heart issue. I like what C.S. Lewis says, integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. It's easy to work with integrity when eyes are on us, but what about when they're not? When the, the boss is out of the office for the day? Or when we're work, working from home? Now, I work as a primary school teacher, and there are often many pairs of eyes in my classroom. Not just the 30 children in my class, but other colleagues, my head teacher, parents, inspectors. The touchstone that I use is, am I being the same when they are looking as I am when it's just me and the children? Do I have the same level of patience, for example, when my head teacher is observing a lesson as I do when it's a wet Wednesday afternoon at the end of a long day and my classroom door is closed? Some years ago, I wrote a truth declaration out <coughs> of this passage that I still have saved on my phone. And I often will get it out and read it out loud at the start of the day, especially if it's a day that I know I'm going to be vulnerable to the judgment of others, or if I'm just not feeling very motivated. 
It says, I declare that I can be exactly the same whether eyes are on me or not because it is Jesus I am serving, not human masters. So freeing. And this helps me to recognize the temptation to fall into a performance mentality and people please to win favor and instead work with sincerity of heart as I seek to do God's will. And this totally changes the perspective of work. Paul is saying that we can be liberated from the slavery of people pleasing into the freedom of serving Christ in all things. So, obedience with integrity is the first characteristic of how Paul says Christians are to approach relationships in the workplace. The second characteristic is that they are to serve wholeheartedly. Verse 7 Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Paul calls Christian slaves to serve, which, when we apply to our modern context, is an interesting word for paid employment. Don't I do this for money? Well, we've already seen how to obey our boss is more about serving that person than it is about just agreeing with them. And verse 7 provokes us to reflect on who we are ultimately working for. Is it myself, my reputation, my boss or the organisation? Or am I working for the Lord? Am I pursuing his kingdom and looking to bring his reputation and lordship into everything he's asked me to do? Am I more concerned about fitting in and being favourably looked upon than I am about transforming culture and the atmosphere of my workplace? To serve in our workplaces wholeheartedly as if we were serving the Lord is actually about reframing work so that we see it as part of our worship. A really helpful phrase I heard someone use recently is, I get to, instead of, I have to. Let me give you an example. Last week, it was my turn to do an assembly at school. And I started the day, being honest here, moaning to my husband, Rich, that I have to go and set up the hall before I can go and set up my classroom for the day, and then I won't actually have the assembly time to catch up on jobs. But then I tried reframing it with, I get to. So instead of, I have to do assembly today, I get to speak to nearly 200 children all at once. I get to speak words of truth and love. This happened to be our weekly celebration assembly, so I get to celebrate and champion the children for what they've done this week. 
I get to speak words of life over them to communicate you're important, you matter, what you do gets noticed. Delivering that assembly then became an act of worship as I approached it as if I were serving the Lord rather than just getting through it because I'd been asked to do it. I wonder what this reframing would look like for you in your context. I'd encourage you to try it. Think of an example of maybe something from last week. The more mundane, the better. And ask the Holy Spirit to show you what would it look like if you approached it as, I get to. When we approach work as worship, we start to notice where God is at work and what he might want to do through us as we work as if we were serving the Lord, not people. And this mindset changes the way that we see success and reward. This is something Paul goes on to address in verse 8. He reminds us that the reason we can work as if we are serving the Lord and not people is because we are not living for the rewards of this earth. Verse 8, because you know that the Lord will reward you, sorry, will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. So no good work is ever left unrewarded by him. So whether we are recognised or rewarded in a work context now or not, whether we find what we do rewarding, serving God wholeheartedly at work is a rewarding way to live because it demonstrates that it's Jesus we are serving and our value is from him, not from our work. We get to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I wonder if you've been looking for a ward at work in the right places. Who are you looking for reward from? As children of God, we have been given a place in God's family. We are daughters and sons, and we share in the heavenly inheritance as a co-heir with Jesus. That is our ultimate reward. And it has nothing to do with earthly performance or success. It is freely given to us as children of God. So, on that wet Wednesday, or the day the boss is out, or that conversation when you decide to challenge a derogatory comment, or you hold your tongue when you're tempted to promote yourself over others, your father sees it all. His eyes are on you. Nothing is wasted or overlooked by him. We've seen then how slaves are to show obedience with integrity and to serve in their work wholeheartedly, 
knowing that their reward comes from the Lord. In the final verse of the passage, Paul turns his attention to how masters are to relate to slaves. And Paul basically says that the same principles that he's just outlined for slaves apply to Christian bosses. Verse 9, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Paul is saying, if you're a boss and you hope to receive respect, then you need to show it. If you hope to receive service, then you need to give it. As parents are not to provoke their children, so masters are not to threaten their slaves and misuse their position of authority. Threats are a weapon which the powerful wield over the powerless. And a relationship based on threats is no relationship at all, which is why Paul forbids it. Ultimately, Jesus is master of both slave and slave owner, employee and boss, and there is no favoritism from the Lord. This description of how the slave master was to relate to their slave is another indication of how countercultural Paul's instructions were to Christian communities. He is reducing the cultural and social gap between slave and slave owner. Instead of the master regarding this relationship as one where he was superior and could lord it over his workers, he was to develop a relationship in which he gave the same treatment as he hoped to receive, remembering that they both shared the same heavenly master. And this is true for us as we lead others. Whether leadership is explicitly on our job description or not, we all get to lead others as we influence culture for God's kingdom. John Maxwell says, the growth and development of people is the highest form of leadership. We are to provide people with what is right and fair. We are to be the people who have the reputation of always doing what we say we're going to do. Of always looking for ways in which we can honour others, even if we feel like they don't deserve it. Of standing up for those whose voice is not heard or who cannot speak for themselves. We get to change atmospheres and bring God's presence into every situation. So, as we come to a conclusion, we've seen there is a call from Paul to take relationships in the workplace very seriously. These are not just people we happen to work with or work for. They are people God is calling us to show godly obedience and honour to. And to do that with integrity and respect, just as if we were serving the Lord. 
So as we come to a close, what I'd love us to do is to take some time to pray together for our workplaces and the relationships with our colleagues. I don't know about you, but it is my experience that the enemy often goes after relationships because they are so significant for what God wants to do in us and through us. And this is especially true at work. Psalm 133 tells us that God bestows his blessing when God's people live together in unity. So let's finish by just getting into groups of maybe three or four just with the people around us and praying for each other. I'm conscious that some of us might be taking a break from work over the next few weeks. So let's pray for renewed vision for how God can use us through our relationships at work. And it might be actually that this morning God has brought to mind specific people and relationships at work that you want to pray for. Let's stand with each other and pray for those people, pray for those relationships, and ask God for his blessing on them. And then we'll close the meeting in a few minutes. So can I just encourage you to stand, just turn to the people around you, and let's share and pray together.